It's Law Talk with BJ, the podcast where trial attorney and legal commentator BJ Bernstein and her guests discuss the latest issues from around the legal world. BJ Bernstein is a proven dynamic trial lawyer, winning major appellate cases in her 30 years of practicing law. She's been named to Georgia's super lawyer list since 2008 and also Georgia Trent Magazine Legal Elite and received national and state awards for her client advocacy and commitment to justice. Now, here's your host, B.J. Bernstein. Hi, this is B.J. Bernstein. Welcome to Law Talk with B.J. And today we're going to look at something that is on all of our minds, and that is dealing with mental health issues. It has been front and center with the shootings at so many schools over the last few years. We hear it repeatedly on the news about people having mental health issues as the cause of some serious criminal offenses or some tragedies where we hear about individuals whose problem only is, I shouldn't say only is in the sense of it's as if it's no big deal, but maybe if we would just help them, they wouldn't even touch the criminal justice system. And to help me do that is someone who I have relied on a number of times because of his stature in the psychiatric community and his fairness and honesty in looking at his patients and clients and in the cases he works in. And that's Dr. Matthew Norman from Atlanta, Georgia, who is a psychiatrist who has been qualified and testified over 150 times in the courts as an expert, including a number of death penalty cases. He went to Mercer um, University Medical School, and he did his residency at Emory University and now works in the arena of forensic psychiatry. We're going to talk about what that means. So welcome, Matt. Thank you, BJ. Thank you for having me. So let's go right in for, first of all, what is a forensic psychiatrist? How is that different from the psychiatrist that I go visit or someone goes visits because of a certain issue in their life where they need um, assistance? We'll start there. So forensic psychiatrist is any interaction of psychiatry in the law. So essentially it's a psychiatrist who then puts on a different hat because the individual has some interaction with the legal system. Oftentimes we can look at issues of criminal responsibility, that is the insanity defense, competency to stand trial, or in the civil arena, uh, evaluation for disability. So I just put on a different hat for that time period. So you are trying to figure out for whether it's a court or, as you mentioned, for insurance purposes, whatever it is, an objective review of what the psychiatric status is of an individual. And that's different from going into treatment and prescribing medication or figuring out um, the further part of what they need. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. So during the time that I'm treating a patient, I'm there to advocate for them and their position and try to get them better. When I'm wearing the hat of the forensic psychiatrist, I'm advocating for science and essentially calling it the way I see it. So it is a little different to wear that forensic hat. So when a criminal defense attorney or even a prosecutor they calls you to look at a case or um, determine what's appropriate, is there some sort of mental health defense, that is a pure independent 
uh, decision about based on what you find clinically and what tests you run. Is that fair to say? That's fair to say, and that's certainly the way I try to approach it. And so sometimes if I call you and I say, oh, that's not what I was thinking you were going to tell me, you just look at me and say, that's the way it is. Yes, I uh, I do disappoint from time to time. <laughs> and and the truth of the matter is, it's, a, it's critical for the criminal justice system in particular, but even the civil justice system, that we have some sort of objective measure the best we can. Um, so let's just dive in right now about what we're seeing so much in the news with regard to the shooter in Florida. And we're having all these diagnoses by television, so to speak. Can you give us an idea, obviously, about what really should have happened if if he had been, that we, we've heard these phone calls to the police, the tips to the FBI, if at that point, someone like him were brought to someone such as yourself, a forensic psychiatrist. What kind of things would you do and what kind of studies, how do you, how do you make a determination? I'm not asking you to diagnose him, but, but what skills and what things do you use to get there? I think as a psychiatrist, you use uh, the training that we have from the standpoint of trying to do a, a, it's a medical examination. It's just tweaked a little bit because it's a psychiatric examination. And what we're trying to do is figure out what's causing the individual pain. Um, if I break a bone or I have uh, an injury to a limb, I'll go to an orthopedic surgeon perhaps and say, hey, this is hurting me. And as a psychiatrist, what, what we have is an individual whose brain is causing them emotional pain. And we try to determine what's causing that emotional pain and then hopefully do a little more and just put a Band-Aid on it. But when you're determining it, is it a set of tests or – or do you just listen to the person and you're looking for certain type of behavior? So it certainly depends on the individual. There are tests that you can give an individual to determine what is the psychiatric condition that's going on. Uh, a lot of it is clinical examination. So just sitting down with them and listening to them, hearing what their story is, hearing what their story was from when they were born, and spending that time with them to listen to them and, and hear what their complaints are. Uh, we, we all have tragedy that's occurred or stressors that happen in our lives. And, and we, at times, that can spill over to cause behavioral problems. And, and that's an interesting point because I'm thinking of some things you've and I worked on, and obviously I'm not going to go into privilege things, but that there have been cases where literally something at birth, like the birth records showed some problems such that later when the person had a certain diagnosis, whether it was schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, the different things, and we'll talk about those, that it could have stemmed from a birth injury. Absolutely. And that's one of the things I like about forensic psychiatry. It's one of the things that interested me when I was actually an undergraduate and studying psychology was forensic psychiatry gave, in my view, the opportunity to actually look back all the way at the birth certificate in some cases, depending on what the circumstances of the case was. Uh, and oftentimes, as a treating psychiatrist, we may not have the time or the energy or the ability to actually do that. But one of the things in forensic psychiatry is we do try to dive all the way back. And yes, there can be something that happened at birth that actually gives us the answer to the detective work we're trying to do. What's, uh, what's detective the detective work, exactly. A psychological detective to see that there are things or signs that happened through childhood or when someone's a teenager that then explodes later in their life and they become part of the criminal justice system. Absolutely, and that's the way I view it. I, uh, 
have told other people, I tell my children I'm essentially a psychiatric detective when I'm wearing that forensic hat. So when we're doing that and we're looking at that, there's certain diagnoses, I think it would be fair to say, that we keep coming in contact with when we're going to court. For instance, I mentioned one, bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. Correct me if I'm wrong. I've learned from you and a few other folks I consult over the years. Some of these things can't full, they may show themselves at an earlier age, but can't formally be diagnosed until the person's maybe in their mid-20s or so. That's correct. For the, What we have learned is with psychiatry and the sciences, a lot of these things don't, there are what we call soft signs or subtle signs that may occur in childhood or adolescence, but really a lot of these, because the brain is not fully developed until we're in our mid-20s. And so a lot of these things don't emerge until later in life, that is 18 to 25. And that's really when folks were coming into contact. Parents, family, friends may have noticed, hey, this person was a little odd, they were a little different, but it wasn't anything that was enough to give them enough concern to to do something about it. And it's not until later. Uh, Our thinking and what we know is that can be uh, the way I describe it, it's a lock and key phenomenon in that we have the genes, the genes are there for these illnesses, but then the key doesn't get cut until later in life. And then once that key gets cut, it fits the lock, turns it on, and there's the illness. But I guess the hard part is with the way the system works and what happens and add to it the access to alcohol or drugs prior to being fully, which I'm, alcohol and drugs can be either a way that a person self is doing self-care because they realize something's wrong and they're using that to try to do things better and it turns out they have a psychiatric issue sometimes yes not all the times i mean obviously people are addicted to drugs and alcoholism are separate but they can merge often with what's actually a psychiatric difficulty that's correct and then and there are there are a number of uh certainly uh excessive anxiety worries Uh, you'll see someone drinking alcohol to try to alleviate that. Uh, I've seen individuals who have schizophrenia and maybe they're starting to hear some voices or feel a little paranoid. They may smoke a little marijuana to try to see if they can alleviate that. Uh, And then what starts is something somewhat innocuous, what we may call self-medicating, ultimately can turn into an addiction. And then uh, because some of these things are against the law, we'll run them into uh, your office uh, once they get arrested. What do we do, though, with these younger, and again, um, the most recent is the shooting in Florida, but over and over and over, these school shootings, they are reporting signs that teachers and friends or other schoolmates recognize about the person, but there's not a diagnosis and may not be able to get one at that point. What does the psychiatric world, the psychiatric community try to do or could do to assist people to spot those things in the school setting or a parent to recognize it in their own child? It's evolved somewhat. Uh, There's a lot less stigma than there used to be, but stigma is still the number one reason that people will not go get treatment. And the trouble is folks don't get treatment. It wasn't until a few years ago that we had mental health parity. That is the ability for the insurance companies, if they were going to pay for a medical condition, they have to pay for the psychiatric treatment as well. And that was very recently that that came into force. And it still is difficult for a lot of people to get the help they need. So 
individuals, family members, friends can call, can call the police, can talk to the police. And ultimately, though, if the help is not there, if it's not in the community, and if the person doesn't want the help or there's a financial barrier to getting the help, they're not going to get the help they need. And if they don't get the help they need, we're going to see behavior like this. In your work, have you seen kind of a trend or a national trend with regard to how wide and prevalent mental health issues is in the United States? I've been told by someone, a wonderful little quote, that the only normal people I know are those I don't know very well. Wow. That rings true. Um, I haven't thought about this in a long time. When I was um, long before law school, my own uncle died in a mental health facility. He had... um, My parents were kind of quiet about everything, but he apparently got in his car and rode to Washington, D.C. to try to deliver a message to somebody in the public sector. And if you look at yourself in the mirror, I guess we all struggle at times with different things. It would be considered clinically depression um, and and go on from there. Yes. I mean, depression and anxiety are quite prevalent. Uh, The statistics are that if you look at the what they call the epidemiology, how prevalent is our mental illnesses, uh, the studies show that 46 percent of Americans will suffer at some point in time in their lifetime with a diagnosable mental illness or substance use disorder. 46 percent, that's nearly half. It sounds like a lot. Uh, That may be the person that has Alzheimer's late in life, or it could be a child who only suffers with attentional issues as a child. Uh, So it's not that 46% of us have a mental illness at any given time. It's that 46% of us will have something during our lifetimes. Uh, And that's a a high number, but it means that we kind of need to keep our ears and our eyes open to try to help those around us and to look in the mirror, like you said, to when we need help, we need to go get it. You know, that with that high number, and again, there's a label that there's, a, there's almost a shame. You know, I've been to a psychiatrist. I've been to a psychologist. Uh, people, even when they're going through marital difficulties and they just go to, quote, counseling. Like we've changed the word even so that it doesn't seem so ominous. But there is this general hesitation as if I can't claim knowing that something or want to know that something's wrong with me or a loved one or a family member because that just doesn't happen to us, that stigma that you're talking about. Yes, and it's still very prevalent. Uh, as a quick example, I, I have a friend who's an a OBGYN. He's an obstetrician-gynecologist, and occasionally we'll go out to dinner, and uh, we had a patient that we had in common, and he talks about how his patients come up to him and give him big hugs and say, thank you very much. You delivered my children. You took care of me. You're my doctor. Let me introduce you to people. When people see me out in public who I see as patients, they generally turn the other way and they don't want to acknowledge it. And I understand the concept of wanting to keep that confidential and maybe not telling people. But on the other hand, we've got to be able to get over that uh, stigma. If we don't get over that stigma, if we don't embrace our physicians, our healers the same way for mental health that we do for physical health, I think we're going to continue to struggle with this. And is part of that also there's the consequences? Like I won't be able to keep my job if they believe that I suffer from depression or if they believe that I'm bipolar and that I'm on medication and if they find out um, I'm not going to be able to do my job. And in fact, some jobs ask those specific questions. Yes, and I think that's where we still have a lot of work to do. I will say that generationally, it looks like it's getting better uh, in that the younger generation 
seems to have less stigma than the older generation, but we do. We still talk about, uh, we use the word crazy, and we use that in a derogatory sense, as opposed to talking about, hey, I've got depression, I've got anxiety. The same way we say, maybe say we have diabetes, or we have, we have, I have breast cancer, or whatever it is. Some people can keep that information private, but they're happy sometimes to talk about those illnesses. Uh, people are not as happy to talk about their mental health diagnoses. And for some people, those illnesses, when they do explode, they literally explode. And it may be there, there may be these small signs. And I'm not talking about exploding to the extent that there's a shooting or a serious criminal offense, but behavior that is disarming to everyone around them um, and quite frightening. Absolutely. And that's what I think scares some people and it scares family members, friends, and may drive them away. And it may be why people don't talk about it. But on the other hand, I would say if we can break down the stigma and people can talk about in an open forum, gosh, I was just feeling really anxious and that's what caused me to explode that way. There at least is, one, an acceptance of, hey, this is where the behavior came from, but also an explanation for the other people so that they go, hey, well, we can help you with that, right? If we just go, do you just should you go sit down with somebody? Should you get counseling? Should you be on medications? It can then, if that discourse can occur, I think the behavior can improve. And, it, and it's much more likely than if we don't talk about it and everybody brushes it under the rug. So sometimes as we are saying this and in your professional part now, switching to the forensic mode, you know, these behaviors get to the point that there is an arrest and the person is dealing with the criminal justice system, a criminal justice system that doesn't necessarily have the funding to be able to give care for the people who come into their, into the, to the jail. Obviously, initially there's not, you're just arrested and put in population. But as the case goes on, Judges are listening, prosecutors are assessing, the defense attorney is arguing about what's happened to this person. Have you noticed a change in, I think you've been practicing over about 15, 17 years now, a change in the receptiveness of judges to believe that there isn't even a mental health issue? So I have and I have not. I have seen a lot of judges become far more receptive. They're far more mental health courts today than there were when I first started. That was almost an unheard of term where someone can go through the criminal justice system and hopefully have the charges reduced or not prosecuted if they get the treatment they need. Uh, That's relatively novel in the time that I've been practicing. But on the flip side, I still have seen a lot of people go, well, everybody has back to the 46%. Well, everybody's got something. Do we just let everybody go? So I still think it's something where judges and prosecutors need additional education. Defense attorneys need additional education. There are some people that are going to misbehave, and it's not necessarily a psychiatric reason. Not all behavior is caused by something that's going on from a psychiatric reason. Can you give me some of those reasons that you've seen where you have somebody and you're like, I'm not, I can't diagnose you with anything, but is there something in general that you see about that person behavior-wise that leads them towards violence or, you know, some really awful behavior? The, you know, we were going through the explosion and realization of how much sexual exploitation and sexual misconduct there is um, in our society. How, do, how are you seeing anything that folks can grasp onto for help in those areas and helping a judge see the difference. 
Yes. So there, you know, in in my look at this, there's a percentage of the population and the number somewhere between one and three percent has a personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder. Unfortunately, there's no good treatment for that. And these are folks that have a hard time empathizing with other people's feelings. They like to manipulate other people. They like to break the rules. Um, A lot of these individuals end up interacting with the criminal justice system. Uh, Some of them end up becoming CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. It depends on which direction they go. That's quite a range. It's quite a range. (laughs) And and so it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to end up in a courthouse. Um, You can turn that positively, that energy. And the unfortunate thing is they're those people that it's hard as a forensic psychiatrist to tell a defense attorney, oh, well, here's what's going on. And by the way, this is mitigating because it's not mitigating. It can be aggravating. It can make people think without reform. And since there's no good treatment, we just need to lock them up forever. We just need to lock these people up forever. The good news is that's a small segment of the population. The majority, if there is some other behavior and it's explained by a psychiatric illness, there are good treatments for it. But I have seen, unfortunately, there's a small segment of the population that is not going to reform their behavior. And some of the things that you have and some of the diagnoses you have, you know, there's a slow creep as a person ages. And then sometimes there are traumatic events, and I'm thinking of one in particular a couple times that this has come up in my career and probably intersected with you, maybe not, where there's a car accident, there's a brain injury, especially brain injuries. Over the years, I've been seeing a lot of those cases where the person's perfectly fine, there is some sort of severe trauma that can be objectively measured, and it's caused a brain injury, and now a brain-injured person finds himself in your office for an evaluation to try to figure out the culpability or is there a mental health defense there because of a brain injury? There are those that are can be quite severe um, and like a bad car accident and someone having to go to the hospital for an extended period of time uh, in a coma. And those absolutely can have an impact on behavior and have them interacting with the criminal justice system. I am seeing as a forensic psychiatrist, there are those individuals that are at the other end of the spectrum, that it's a more mild injury that doesn't result in loss of consciousness, uh, and yet it is still being presented as a traumatic brain injury, which, in my opinion, can erode at those that are real cases. So if you're a prosecutor and, or a judge and you hear brain injury, brain injury, brain injury, it's, it's like the boy that cried wolf. If you hear it every day, you're going you're gonna to water it down in your brain and then not listen to the case that's real because absolutely I agree with you. There are a whole bunch of folks out there that have bad traumatic brain injuries and it causes changes in their behavior. And then they interact with the criminal justice system. And in my opinion, we should deal with those people differently. So especially with, so for instance, they get the medical treatment on the brain injury because I'll see a lot of that. But then there's that pause where no one actually goes to a psychologist. You're a psychiatrist, but a psychologist perhaps to help with counseling or give ways to work around the brain injury or Again, some of the other diagnoses that you may have, depression or even the bipolar type things of I need to learn some skills to work around it so I don't have the worst consequence of what has truly happened to me. Yes. And and the good news is I will say that's another change I've, I've seen in the years I've been practicing in that there was not a huge 
body of literature nor a lot of treatment available for folks that had brain injuries to be able to, unless it was so severe that they were in a rehabilitation facility. And today, uh, and I, perhaps we should credit some of the research on CTE for this, uh, there are more places now available in the country for people to get some, the help they need to work on the behavioral pieces. Uh, CTE, and that maybe, as in the research done on like the football players yes. and things that we're seeing. Tell us a little bit, yes. bit more about that. <clears throat> so chronic traumatic encephalopathy, CTE. You notice everybody I made him say that. <laughs> Very good. Keep going. In that, you know, with multiple repetitive traumas that may not get to the point where the person was in a coma in a hospital for months on end, but they had repetitive traumas due to either their occupation, that is where they have concussions, and, and a lot of what we've been reading about is folks that play in the NFL or play football uh, because it's a, a contact sport. There are other sports, the soccer players heading the ball, and there have been stories of people who played soccer and then had concussions and developed depression and got suicidal or had behavioral mismanagement in that they got violent or aggressive, irritable. The good news is, I think because we're having a conversation about that, and we've heard more about that, hopefully people are not thinking, oh, that's just junk science or it's something we don't know anything about. And there is better treatment today than there was 15 years ago, for sure, in that arena. But it takes us recognizing it and getting people the help they need. And and it's encouraging what you're saying about there is more recognition in the courts. There's more recognition in the schools because of these horrendous things that are happening now. There's more consciousness amongst all of us about mental health issues. But the big question is, where is the treatment? I mean, someone who can afford to hire me privately, and then I can afford to hire you to evaluate, and then we refer them to someone else. They're paying out of pocket. The health insurance debate, we could go on forever, but the reality is there's not much insurance that covers it. It gets restricted. So what are we to do, or what kind of things are you seeing that we need to do to be able to actually get care? So I I, uh, I can get on the soapbox for a little while. I'll take the soapbox for a minute. We don't provide the care that we need uh, in this country for mental health issues. Uh, it's always been a stepchild of medicine. Uh, it remains a stepchild of, of medicine. And I, in that, I, it doesn't get the same level of funding from the insurance companies. It doesn't get the same level of funding and research from the government. And until we decide these are real issues that aren't junk science, they're not quackery, until we as a country decide that we want to treat this, we can talk about, oh, we need to do more treatment. This is what will prevent it. We need to get them in treatment. You're right. It's, it's where the, the money is what you got to follow. And the treatment is not currently where it needs to be. That's a depressing spot to end today. But, but it's realistic because – you know, you think about it, there's these 911 calls, even sometimes from the individual looking for help or, or, or in distress. And to think that our police departments can handle that and know what to do every time or that we don't have a place where the police can turn to to connect them to actual care, to prevent shootings, to prevent tragedies, um, to save lives. It's literally saving a life, in my opinion. This is my opinion part. Um, but it sounds like 
that's got to be part of this debate that's going on that every, you know, we, another show we'll talk about ideas on protecting students and schools and activism, but part of the activism has to be a realization that we have to improve the mental health care system. Yes, we do. We absolutely do. And the police officers will tell you that. They feel like they've got their hands tied. They're doing the best they can, most of them, with very few resources. All right, everybody, let's get on the phone to whoever you can and remember resources. And and if you have the ability and you see someone, you know, make a call or find a way to talk to them to get them to the help they need. Thank you for joining me today. And as every episode, we have a cup of tea, and this one was kind of obvious. Um, this is lavender tea, because with everything that you do, there is nothing calm about it. And I decided that if we were going to talk about this high-stress stuff today, that uh, we'd enjoy a nice cup of lavender tea. So thank you, Dr. Matt Norman. Thank you for having me. This podcast is not to be construed as legal advice. With any legal issue, you should reach out to a professional attorney that practices law in the state and area of law for which you need information or consultation. Law Talk with BJ does not establish an attorney-client relationship, which is only formed when you have hired an attorney and signed an engagement agreement or contract. It's Law Talk with BJ music theme written and produced by Atlanta Audible. This podcast copyright 2018, BJ Bernstein Esquire.